God bless you. That picture, you know, your pastor's very persistent. And so when the pictures were being sent, he was like, just send me something. And I was just, I was dressed, and then I was like, let me throw the hat on. And then I took it, and I was like, why am I sending this? And um, now I am immortalized in that photo for life. Good morning, TWBC. I am so glad to be in the house of God this morning with you. Uh, I was telling Pastor Derek that it feels like this is where your people and my people started. Uh, last year when I got to come and preach and hang out with you, it felt like God was birthing something in that particular season. And as we uh, continued as pastors to discuss what we wanted to do and what God was doing in our lives and in our churches, I, I, I felt like it's just fitting that I got to close out the series here at TWC where I believe, don't, don't tell the other pastors this, this is where I believe it all started. It started with us in, a, in an intimate group right here last year. And so we got to kick this thing off, us together as a group, and I'm excited uh, to be back. I thank God for Pastor Joel T. Meyer, who has been a great friend and accountability partner and uh, a mentor and just uh, a confidant. He's been a whole lot of things to me. And I know that y'all know you have a wonderful and amazing pastor. You ought to give God praise for him right now. Amen. Uh, I need to get directly to the scripture because we have a word from God and a time limit, so we don't want to violate either one of them. Amen. First Samuel chapter number 22. First Samuel chapter number 22. And uh, when you get it, just shout amen. amen. Just shout amen when you got it. It'll be on the screen, but I'd love for you to tap or turn to that particular passage of scripture. Uh, this table is so awesome. Like, I'm seriously in awe of this table. Amen. All right. I'm sorry. I'm random. There's a bit of ADD in my brain. First Samuel 22, beginning at verse 1, here's what it says. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. I want to talk to you from the topic today. We've got something in common. Now, I know that you've been listening to these messages over the last four weeks, and this has kind of been a common thread and a common theme. And then as I'm reading this text, and I'm talking about having something in common, and your people are my people, and you've heard Mark Allen preach a deep message from the book of Genesis about 
all of who we are made in the image of God and how the blood of Jesus rose. You heard Pastor G. Lane Robinson preach from Genesis through Revelation. He preached the whole Bible that week. And then you heard uh, your pastor kick off the series talking about uh, the, the fact that these men who carried this man, when they didn't have anything else in common, them carrying this man to Jesus was their commonality. I, I kind of want to close this thing by reminding you that we've got something in common, but taking an unusual path to get there. This path through this man that many of you who have been to church have heard, a man named David. Now, I don't want to assume that everybody knows the fullness of the story of David, so I kind of want to pick up, uh, we're in chapter 22, I don't want to pick up there, I want to start in 16, when we're introduced to this young man named David. We're introduced to this young man named David because there is a prophet named Samuel, and Samuel has a word from God, and the word from God is, I have rejected Saul as king. I need you to go down to Jesse's house and anoint a new king of Israel. And so Samuel, after some reluctant hesitation on the part of Samuel, goes down to Jesse's house, and he arrives at Jesse's house, and he says, Jesse, here's what we need to do. He's like, I don't want to die, but God has given me an assignment. So, because I don't want to die, I want us to throw a barbecue. We're going to mask this anointing ceremony with a barbecue. They kill an animal and they throw a barbecue. Pastor, Pastor Mitch said amen because he's like me. We love some good barbecue. And so Samuel understands that he can knock out two birds with one stone. He can save his life and he can, he can uh, save his craving. He can get his appetite fed. And so what he does is he throws a barbecue and, and the music is playing and everything is going well and they can hear it around the neighborhood. They say, oh, they're having a party over at Jesse's house. And then Samuel looks at Jesse and says, are there any sons here that I can see if God is anointing them king? And Jesse says, oh, I got the one for you. I got the one. His name is Eliab. Bring him out. He said, Eliab, Eliab, come out here. And when Eliab shows up, he's tall and he's handsome and he's everything that all the ladies in Israel want to shot at Eliab. He's got good credit. He's got a good job. He's got education. He's, he, he, he knows how to treat a woman. He opens up the doors and, and they say, this is the one. And so here's, here's Samuel. He says, all right, this looks good. Easy doing. We're going to pour this oil over this boy and then we're going to get on with this barbecue. Here's what happens. If you know anything about the Old Testament and the anointing, when they would take the horn, they would fill it with oil. They would turn it upside down and if the oil flowed, it was God's choice. If there was no oil, God would be saying, move on. And so they would anoint priests and prophets and kings in that way in the Old Testament. So they take the horn of oil. Samuel turns it upside down. He's looking at the buffet table, ready to move on, and the oil doesn't show up. He looks at the horn. He looks at Jesse, looks at the horn, looks at Eliab and says, God, don't like this one. He says, do you have another son? He says, sure, I got another son. And he brings another one. No oil. He brings another one. No oil. Brings another one. No oil. Brings another one. No oil. Seven times Jesse brings a son before Samuel and there is no oil to flow. So now Samuel's wondering if he's missed God. He's wondering if he has not heard correctly from the voice of God. But before he abandons his assignment, he asks one more question. Now, can I say to somebody who's ready to abandon your assignment today, ask one more question before you abandon your assignment. Here's what he asks. He says... Is there one more son? Do you have any other sons? And Jesse looks at Samuel and says, you really don't want this one. I mean, we got David. He's out there in the back, dirty, writing poems and keeping the sheep. And, and, and he says, well, bring him in, bring him in. And one of the brothers, I can imagine, goes out and says, David, David, uh, come on in, man, get a plate. Get a plate? What's happening? Oh, well, we've been having a barbecue. Y'all been having a barbecue? Nobody told me. I've been out here this whole time. 
So David shows up, goes inside. Samuel, long story short, takes the horn of oil, turns it upside down. The oil flows all over David. Bible says from that day forward, the presence of the Lord is with David. But simultaneously, the presence of the Lord has left Saul, the king of Israel. And in the end of chapter 16, the Bible says a tormenting spirit then comes in and begins to torment Saul. And the Bible says that they tell Saul, if you could just get somebody to come in and play for you, that spirit will be driven away. And they find the son of Jesse, David, the one that they unbeknownst to them, has been anointed king of Israel. And he gets a chance to preview the palace. He gets a chance to preview the palace. He shows up in chapter 16 to play for Saul. And every time he plays for Saul, whenever he worships, the evil spirit is driven away. Every time he plays for Saul, that evil spirit can't stand the presence of God. So it runs out of the presence of God. And this is why it's important for you, even on a day where the thunder and the lightning are flashing, to find your way into the house of God. Because whatever is tormenting you can be driven away by the presence and the power of God in the midst of our praise. So he plays and that, that spirit is driven out. And Saul, Saul says, I like this boy. So when I need him, I'll call him. But for now, I'll go back home. He goes back and he tends his sheep. Everything seems to be cool and under control until chapter 17. Chapter 17, the Bible says that this, this, this giant shows up named Goliath. And this giant called Goliath shows up. And when he shows up, he is mocking Israel. He's asking Israel, hey, can you defeat me? If you can defeat me, we'll be your servants. If I can defeat you, you'll be our servants. Y'all know the story? David comes out, brings uh, the first Uber Eats delivery to his brothers. It is a cheese sandwich delivery. You got to read the text. It says he brought G uh, bread and cheese to the battlefield. He brings cheese sandwiches to his brothers. His brothers begin to ask him all kind of questions. Where are your sheep? Why are you here? What are you doing? Are you trying to gain notoriety for yourself? David, go sit down somewhere. David says, you've asked all of your questions. I've got a question. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who is defying the armies of the living God? I got some questions. What will be given to the man that defeats this person? I love David's line of questioning here because he says, I need to know what the rewards are because I'm going to defeat this giant. In David's heart, here's what he says. The shepherd boy can't die because the king has to live. He understood that in chapter 16, he was anointed king, and right now, he's not king. So there is no Goliath that can take him out until the promise of God over his life has been fulfilled. And I need to tell somebody in here today that there is no Goliath that can take you out. I don't care if you're 8 or 80 until the promise of God is fulfilled over your life. David defeats Goliath. We know the story. He defeats Goliath. He then becomes captain over Saul's army. After he becomes captain over Saul's army, he defeats Philistines, Amalekites, Amorites, all kind of ites, here and night, there and night, everywhere and ite, ite. And then the album comes out. The album comes out. The album drops. It's the album of the women of Israel. They drop the album. And Saul is listening to the album one day, and there's a track on there that he's particularly interested in. It's called 1,000, 10,000. And he starts listening to this track and he's bumping it and the head is nodding. He says, turn that up in the palace. I like it. He's turning it up and they say, Saul is slain his thousands. He said, turn it up three more notches. I like that. But David is tens of thousands. Hit the 15 second rewind. What did they just say? David slain ten thousands. They said, it's true. Saul says, I don't like it. And in that moment, Saul began to compare himself to David rather than uh, be, be excited about what God had already done in his life. 
He began to compare himself with David rather than look at the blessings that God had given him. Rather than saying, God, I thank you for my thousands, he compared himself to David's tens of thousands. Can I talk to two people in the room who've been comparing yourself to somebody else rather than looking at the blessings God has already given you? It is your time to begin to celebrate what God has done and stop complaining and comparing yourself to what other people have done. Saul becomes jealous in that moment. He starts throwing spears at David. He tries to kill David. And so it is in this context that we find David in the cave of Adullam. He is on the run from Saul. Prior to this, in chapter 21, the Bible says that he finds himself in front of a kish, the king of Gath. In front of the kish, the king of Gath. Gath, now you got to understand, is a powerful place. Why? Because David defeated Goliath. That doesn't mean anything to you yet. David defeated Goliath, but if you read a little bit about Goliath, his birthplace was Gath. And so now David stands in the place that represents his greatest victory, but it also he's standing in front of his greatest enemy. Akish is looking at him and thinking, you, you're the one that took away my ability to become the powerful king that I wanted to be. My champion is dead because of you, David. And so when David sees that he's in trouble, David has to figure out something real quick. Chapter 21 says, David looks at Akish, he prays to the Lord, he looks at his men, here's what he does, he plays crazy. The Bible says he starts shaking like he didn't get his Starbucks. Bible says he starts drooling and there's, there's spittle coming down his beard. He's drooling all over himself and he's shaking and he's rolling his eyes in the back of his head. He looks like something has gone terribly wrong and the kid says, get him out of my presence. And David says, I've made it out one more time. He says, the Lord has delivered me one more time. And he writes Psalms about this. But we find ourselves here in chapter 22 after he's left Gath and in a duel. After he's left Gath, he's in Adullam, and he's left Gath, which represents his greatest victory. He has defeated Goliath of Gath, and Gath is representative of his greatest victory. But he's on his way to Bethlehem, which great represents his greatest destiny. And in between your greatest victory and your greatest destiny, lay your greatest pedagogy, which is your greatest lesson, your process in which God has to remove some things from you. Because between your greatest victory and your destiny, God says some things you won with over here cannot walk into your destiny over here. He said, there are some character issues I have to work out of you before you get to your destiny. There are some flaws that I need to take out of you before you get to your destiny. He says, there are some issues that I need to work out of you before you get into your destiny. And I believe that David learns one of the greatest lessons about people in this cave called Adullam. In this cave called Adullam, David learns one of the greatest lessons about people. And in this particular uh, message, I want to give you three things very quickly about what David learns. Now, before I do that, I got to tell you a story. Don't take my man card. I like romantic comedies. <laughs> I like romantic comedies. I like the movies where, where the boy meets girl and they, they go through all of these trials and tribulations to get together and then they live happily ever after. I like those movies. I like them because I get to cuddle up with my wife next to her. And I get to predict the movies. Now, she gets mad at me. It doesn't turn out the way that I want them to because I, I begin to predict the movies and she gets mad about my predictions and she tells me, just let me enjoy the movie. But I tell her, it's so obvious what's going to happen. I've seen enough of these. And oftentimes, there's this one, this is one that I really love. There's the one that I really love, the, the plot. It's the plot, not the movie. It's the plot. The plot. You can insert title here. But it's the plot that the boyfriend, the girlfriend, and the best friend are all together. The boyfriend and the best friend don't get along. They both have a mutual acquaintance in the girlfriend. But the boyfriend and the, and the best friend are always trying to undercut each other. No matter what's going on in the movie, they're trying to undercut each other in front of the girlfriend. They're trying to make each other look bad in front of the girlfriend. They're trying to make each other uh, look, look like they're unworthy in front of the girlfriend. Until one day, they're stuck, and it's always in an elevator. That noise right there, it happens. Perfect timing, Holy Spirit. And then the elevator shakes, and the lights begin to flicker. Don't flicker the lights, Lord. 
And then that voice comes down and says, you're going to be stuck here for about an hour. You might as well get comfortable. And now it is this boyfriend and the best friend, the two people who do not get along, the two people who cannot stand one another, the two people who are stuck together and cannot stand each other. And here's what happens. They're stuck together in this elevator, and they begin to discover that they have more in common than they thought. They begin to discover that being stuck together has pulled out of them the similarities that they did not know that they had. That they have something, rather someone, in common. And by the end of their time in the elevator, they recognize that their love for that one mutual person draws them together even greater than the differences that they thought should have driven them apart. And here's what I need to tell the body of Christ this morning. That we've got something, rather someone, in common. And that when we think about Jesus, the things that draw us together in Christ ought to be greater than the things that drive us apart in our society. We ought to be excited of the fact that we've got something, rather someone in common. I believe David learned this lesson stuck in a cave, not an elevator. And I want to show you the three things that we've got to learn to do if we want to get out of this cave or this elevator that we're stuck in. Here's the thing, people of God, we are stuck on this earth together. God is not removing us. I don't care what Richard Branson says, you are not going to live on Mars care if he provides space shuttle trips there. You're not going and you're not going to live there. This is your home until you get home. And you know our earth is not our home. It's just our temporary residence. So three things that I want to give you very quickly and then we'll get out of here and go get an early brunch. Well, you will. I'll be here for the next service. <laughs> Point number one, if you want to get out of this cave and realize that we've got something in common, you need to release past hurts. Release past hurts. Look at verse number one. The Bible says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. We read the Bible too fast and we take all of the human emotion out of it. The Bible says that David is in a cave on the run for his life. His family has already rejected him. And here is David by himself in this cave. And when times get rough, it's the people who've heard him who come looking for help from him. It's the people who've who pained him, who are looking for him to be their problem solver. It's the, people, it's the people who dropped him who are now looking for him to be their deliverer. I need you to understand that nobody hurts you like the people closest to you. I, I wish there was somebody who would be honest in here today. That there, was, there, there, there were people who hurt you in your lives. Yes, there were strangers who were rude. There were people who you didn't know that you didn't like their attitude. There were people who you, who you thought could have handled situations differently, but nobody hurts you like people that you've allowed close to you. And it's not that they've exper you've experienced more pain at their hands, it's just that you expected more from their hearts. You, you haven't experienced more from their hands, but you expected more to come from their heart. You expected the people who are supposed to protect you to not cause you that level of pain. You were expecting the people who are supposed to hold you up not to give you that level of hurt. You were expecting the people who are supposed to guide you into your purpose not to give you this kind of problem. And here, David finds himself face-to-face -face with his greatest problem. Up until this point, we don't know much about David outside of his problem with Saul. The only other problem we know is that the people of his life had rejected him. You remember what his brothers did when he came to the battle hill? They talked about him. They were probably jealous of him, had insecurities because he was anointed to be king and they weren't. And they did not understand that David being anointed meant that that was a blessing for the whole family until Saul comes looking to kill him. Until Saul comes looking for David and probably comes looking for the family and they come knocking at the cave door and it couldn't have been me that they knocked on that cave door with. <laughs> David, you in there? Who is it? It's your father, Jesse. 
You know, when you're mad at your daddy, you don't call him daddy. You call him by his first name. <laughs> Jesse, what are you doing here? Well, I'm just wondering. Saul is, on, is out there trying to hurt you, and he's come looking for the family, and we just wonder if we can stay in the cave. Had it been me. Now, this is not David. The text proves otherwise. This would have been me. Now, before I got saved, this is my BC days, I would have been like, Jesse, who did you leave those few little sheep with that you had? The same little excuses Jesse was giving me when I was out there, and my brothers were giving me out. I gave them back to them. Oh, so now y'all want to hang out with David. Now y'all want to come to the cave. Oh, now you want to. And this is how we treat people who've hurt us. We find ourselves in a position where if we could get revenge, we would. But David decides that in this place where he's getting ready to reach his destiny and go to the next place, he says, I'm not just going to be king over most of Israel. I'm going to be king over all Israel. That includes the people who hurt me. And God has given you a destiny to be a witness and a person who shares the gospel and is Christ-like, not to some people, but to all people. And if you're going to do that, you got to learn to release past hurts. The reason why many of us have our racial issues is because we can't release past hurts. The reason why we've got our socioeconomic issues, our political issues, all of these issues is because we can't release past hurt. We remember a day when this happens and it upsets us because it doesn't look like that. And here's what the Lord says, release that hurt. Release that hurt and let me take care of it. Watch this. David had to remember what his fathers and his brothers had forgotten, that we serve a forgiving God. We serve a forgiving God. In verse 3 and 4, watch this, David actually finds a place of safety for his family. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. David provides a place of safety. Let me give you five quick questions, and i got to move quickly. Uh, five quick questions that you'll have to ask yourself to see if you've really forgiven someone. Number one, what are my thoughts when I see them or think of them? Do you remember your past hurt? Are you stuck in the past? Or are you willing to move forward and see them for who God is making them to be? Number two, would I help them if they were in need and I had the capacity? Would you do what David did for his family in this situation? Provide for them safety. Number three, do I have any positive thoughts about this person? Can I see past what they did to who they are? Number four, do I think of getting even with this person? Or do I create a cohort of people around me who actually know the things that I know about them and we get to sharing our past hurts about this person and we want them to feel the same isolation and rejection that I felt? Do I want to be even with them? Then the last but not least is do I genuinely want them to do better? Or do I want to see somebody else hurt by them so that I can say, I told you Derek was like that. You should have believed me when I told you. Why do I want you hurt so that I can prove my point? Do I genuinely want them doing better. The first thing that we are called to do if we're going to get out of this cave and see that we have something in common is to release past hurts. The second thing that we need to do is we need to refuse to discriminate. Amen. We need to refuse to discriminate. Verse 2 says, and everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is bitter in soul gathered to him. David becomes commander over 400 men who seemingly are the misfits of Israel who seemingly are the people that nobody wants to be around, the can't-get-right type folks. And these are the type of people that God sends to churches. Oh, I know, I planted one. And when we started, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented, everyone who complained about the last worship leader they had, everybody who complained about the way they used to do things at the old church, they all showed up to my church. And I kept telling them, why is it that you come here with all of your complaints? 
they're talking about their old pastor while they're making a list about me. And I'm wondering what's happening. And I wanted to reject them, but the Lord gave me this verse. And he says, no, you're not to discriminate, you're to disciple. We are not to discriminate against people. We are to disciple them. No matter how we found them, no matter how they came to us, no matter what shape they're in, God has called us as kingdom people to disciple those who don't look like us, who are not in the same place that we're in, who do not have what we've had. God says, I've sent them to you as a reminder of who you were when I found you. If we're honest, we were in distress. We were in debt. Our sin debt had racked up such an account that we could never have paid it. But the blood of Jesus Christ delivered us and saved us and rescued us from having to pay that penalty. He says, you were in debt. You were discontented. You weren't happy. You didn't have purpose. You didn't understand your destiny. But the grace of God. He did not discriminate. He delivered you. He discipled you. And he pushed you on to your destiny. We refuse to discriminate. And when you refuse to discriminate, here's what happens. 1 Samuel 22 and verse 2 describes these men in their uh, original state. But then 1 Chronicles 12, 1 and 2 describe these men in their altered kingdom discipled state. Watch this. Now these are the men who came to David at Ziklag while he could not move about freely because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men, totally different description now, who helped him in war. They were bowmen who could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the right or the left hand. They were Benjamites, Saul's kinsmen. David could have looked at the mouth of that cave and said, you're Benjamites, Saul's kinsmen? You can't come here. You people aren't welcome here. Saul was the one who was trying to kill him. Saul was the reason he was in the cave. And now Saul's cousins and them are here. He could have easily said to them, you people are not welcome. You people have bad tempers. You people try to kill people without a cause. But he says, you're welcome. Let me disciple you so that you don't fall into the same pattern that your ancestors did. Let me, let me disciple you so that you don't fall into the same pattern that the people who have, who have gone before you have. He says, here's what I want to do. I want to disciple you, and I want to grow with you, and I want to help you to become the people that God has called you to be. What if we stop discriminating against people who didn't look like us, who didn't have our education, who didn't have our background, who didn't have our doctrine, who don't have our dress code? And we begin to say, let us make you the people that God has called you to be. David understood, watch this, that it wasn't what God had placed before him, but what God had placed in him that was making the difference. Check this out. I was watching MasterChef a couple weeks ago. <laughs> Me and my daughters love MasterChef. We sit down and we watch MasterChef. And Gordon Ramsay is, is just, he's, he's, he's off the chain. If you know anything about Gordon Ramsay, I don't even know if I should be letting my kids watch Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> They bleep so much when you watch Gordon Ramsay. My kids are like, what is he saying, Daddy? I'm like, I don't know. Let's just. <laughs> and so we're watching MasterChef one day, and Gordon Ramsay says to the, to the, to the people, he says, uh, I've got to give you a challenge. Don't laugh at my English accent. He says, I want to give you a challenge of a great American food. I want to give you the frozen Salisbury steak. Now, this is problematic for these people because they're used to the MasterChef pantry. And the MasterChef pantry has the freshest of ingredients. The MasterChef pantry has the best steaks. It has the best uh, poultry. It has the best herbs and spices and has the best stuff. But he's giving them a frozen Salisbury steak. And he's telling them they need to elevate it to restaurant quality. He says, and when you elevate it to restaurant quality, he says, we will see and the judges will judge and one of you will be going home tonight. So they go through their whole thing and they start counting down 10, 
Nine, everybody's cooking and trying to work. Eight, seven, it's almost time. Six, five, start plating your dishes. Four, three, two, one hands in the air. I hope I made it. I hope I win. Bring your dishes down to the front. Gordon starts to one by one taste the dishes. This lady named Lindsay comes up and he says to her, Lindsay, let me taste your dish. He cuts into it. He looks at it. I started eating my food like Gordon. I started looking at my food. He eats it. He starts chewing it. He gets the sour face. Lindsay, this is disgusting. My daughter says, Gordon is so rude. I said, I know, right? How's he going to be all mad at her? You gave her a frozen Salisbury steak. She's used to better ingredients. Better ingredients would have equaled a better product, Gordon. You can't be mad at her for what it is that you placed in her hand. If she doesn't get the results, it's not her fault. It's your fault. You're the one that gave her the bad ingredients. And then Gordon says something that flipped my world, Pastor Derek. He says, after all that the judges have put inside of you, after all that we've taught you, you think this is a presentable dish to give us today. And Gordon was saying, it does not matter what I placed in front of you because what I placed in you should have given you the ability to elevate what was in front of you. And can I talk to somebody who's being discipled, who's in a growth group, who's, in, who's, who's, who's a part of a serving team here, who, who's been discipled at this place called TWBC? It's not about who God places in front of you. It's about what he's placed inside of you. Every bit of your experiences, every bit of your gift, every bit of your talents, every bit of your... Your testimony has been crafted for this moment when God places somebody in distress or discontented or in debt in front of you. And he says, now I need you to disciple them. Don't you complain about what's put in front of you. You pull out what God has placed in you. While David was in the backyard with those sheep, God was preparing him. While he was fighting the lion and the bear, God was preparing him. While he was fighting Goliath, God was preparing him. While he was writing psalms in the cave by himself, God was preparing him. And all of that moment, he was waiting for these men to come. And he says, everything I gave you, give it out to them. And that's how they turned into the men who would break through the line of the Philistines just to get him a drink of water. That's how these men became the men who would jump in a pit and kill a lion with his bare hands. That's why these are the men who the Bible says, watch this, became better at David, at David's own game. The Bible says they could sling shots with the right and the left hand. They became better at David than who David was. They, they out-David David. <laughs> here's, here's what he says. He says, you've got... To refuse to discriminate, but rather disciple, remembering what God has done for you. Last point, we're out of here. We need to receive sound advice. We need to receive sound advice. Verse 5 says, Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Stronghold is a military term. David was described in chapter 16 as a man of war, which means he was comfortable there. Gad tells him, Get out of your comfort zone. He says, I need you to get out of your comfort zone, David. I need you to move towards something different. I need you to move out of your comfort zone. And can I talk to about two people today who have been comfortable in your walk with the Lord? It's been real comfortable for you. It's been comfortable to come to church but not serve. It's been comfortable for you to participate in worship but not get in a group where you can be held accountable and grow with other people. God is saying to you, get out of the stronghold. Get out of the stronghold because the stronghold that was meant to protect you eventually become the place where you are in your greatest problem. That stronghold can turn on you real quick. And the prophet Gad says to David, get out of the stronghold. And the reason why I say uh, take sound advice, David gets out of the stronghold and goes to the forest of Hereth. He goes to Judah. David could have easily said, Gad, 
Because of my issues and my past and the things that I've dealt with, I don't need anybody trying to talk to me about what I'm supposed to do. I'm the king. David could have had a power trip in this moment. David could have looked around and said, Gad, I'm king in this cave, and you do not need to speak to me. You speak when I tell you to speak. But he said he's a prophet named Gad, which means he had a word from the Lord. And David understood that, watch this, in his circle, God had placed people in him, in, around him that could speak to him from the king of kings. That although, although David was anointed king, he was not king of kings. He was just the king. And in this particular moment, here's what he recognizes. He, he, he heard what I heard when I heard the prophet Samuel Jackson ask the question in the Capital One commercial, what's in your wallet? The prophet Samuel Jackson asked the theological question, what's in your wallet? And when he's asking that question, here's what he's asking. He's asking this great theological question to get you to ponder and to think about what's in your wallet. Because what's in your wallet could open up opportunities and doors and, and things that you would never have had otherwise unless you had this particular thing in your wallet. Can I flip your, your question, Sam? I call him Sam because we're friends. Can I flip your question, Sam, and ask the people of TWC, TWBC today this question, who's in your circle? Who's in your circle? Is it just so small and myopic that it looks just like you? Is it just the people that you're comfortable with? Is it just the people that are yes men or yes women around you? Or do you have people who challenge you? People who expand your vision? People who push you toward greatness? That's why I'm in a circle called TFAC. And once a month, I get with people like Joel T. Meyer. Y'all know him? I get with people like Joel T. Meyer who push me to be better physically, financially, and spiritually. I call that the triple-double. I don't want to just be great in one area. I want to be triple-double. And Joel T. Meyer pushes me to be better in every aspect of my life. He's in my circle and it's not because we have everything alike that I listen to him but it's because we have something rather someone in common and because Jesus is speaking to Joel T. Meyer I know that the spirit can get a word to me through the prophet Joel T. Meyer when we connect and get together who's in your circle here's a question who's in your circle I need you to ask it on the front row right here next to Pastor Derek is a man named John Foster John Foster and a couple of my friends, we get together and we work out. When we work out, we work out because we've got something in common. John Foster has the body of an athlete. I want the body of an athlete. <laughs> John Foster gets to tell me how long we do an exercise and, how, and why we do this exercise. Not because we look the same, not because we have the same background, because we've got something in common. We both want to take care of our health. And I wish there was somebody in here today who would understand that God has sent people into your lives that are different than you are, that are not exactly the same as you are, but because you've got something, rather, someone in common. He says he wants to use that relationship to push you. We love having to disciple people. I can pour into you. I can give to you what it is that I have, but then we hesitate when they're ready to pour into us. Can you receive as much as you can give? Can you receive? And here's what I need you to understand. That the Bible says that when we get together and we're in unity, the Bible says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. How? In unity. He describes that unity and then he says, there the Lord commands blessing, even life forevermore. I need you to raise your hand if you don't want a blessing. No, seriously, if you don't want a blessing, raise your hand because I don't want you to shake mine afterwards. <laughs> All of us want to be blessed, but none of us want to fight for unity. 
That's not the case anymore. Not in these four churches. Not after these four weeks. Not after this one mission. Not anymore. No. We want to be blessed by God. We want to see our, our cities blessed. We want to see our state blessed. We want to see our nation blessed. We want to see the world blessed. And it starts with us fighting for unity. This is just the beginning, guys. And we've got to fight for it. The Bible says that when they were all on one accord, the Spirit came. And the earth was forever changed that day when the spirit came. Let's get on one accord again. And when the Lord shows up, what can happen? 3,000 people were saved on the first church service. What will happen when all of us get together and in unity preach the gospel and proclaim what God is doing? We can see world revival. And it will start with these four little churches that just proclaim this one statement. Your people are my people. Let's pray.